would take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you somewhere, and Exodus chapter 3 is on page 46 of that Bible. Page 46. We're going to read the first 10 verses of chapter 3. And as you get there, I do want to say thank you publicly to all of you who made uh, our Good Friday gathering uh, happen. To thank you to the praise team and the sound folks who did extra rehearsals to make that happen. Thank you to Debbie Schweikert and all of those who helped with setting up the gym and making sure we had um, uh, treats. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Paula, for making that cinnamon oatmeal cake, all right? And all of the other treats. It was all wonderful. It was good to be together, and uh, that takes all of us doing our part uh, to make that happen. I did my part by eating the oatmeal cinnamon cake. Uh, but we will… Let's read together Exodus 3. I'll read verses 1 to 10, and then, and then we'll pray. This is what the Spirit says. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take off, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites." And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to this text, we recognize our need for you to be our teacher, for your spirit to empower both the one who preaches and all of us who hear your word. And we ask today that what we know not, you will teach us. What we have not, you will give us. And what we are not, you will make us. For the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. As people look at their lives, 
they can often find a turning point. Life's going in one direction, things seem to be going well, or things seem to be going terribly, something happens, and then life takes another direction altogether. You take a young child who tends to hate school, who, who thinks, I just want to get through this and become an adult so I never have to go to school again. And then they encounter that encouraging and thoughtful and helpful teacher who sparks an interest in learning they'd never had before. And suddenly things change. Or you take a man and a woman who's, or a man or a woman who are in some career and, and they face some kind of difficulty or get laid off and they see this as an opportunity to do something completely different. Maybe they go back to school. Maybe they start just launch into some other career. It's a turning point. I remember one of the turning points in my life was the summer after my freshman year of college. I had gone to school. Uh, I was a Christian. I became a Christian in high school. Uh, but I went to school because I wanted to follow in the footsteps of my high school music teacher, Mr. Crow, king of puns. But I wanted to follow in his footsteps. I wanted to get a music degree, and I wanted to teach high school music and lead choirs my whole career. In fact, I literally wanted to follow in his footsteps. I knew he was quite old when I was there. I was hoping maybe he would retire around the time that I finished, and somehow I would end up at my high school. Well, then, summer after my freshman year, because I wanted a week, I was actually cleaning construction sites the summer after my freshman year, which you've never done that. If you've never cleaned up a construction site, well, good for you for avoiding it. It's not terribly fun work. But I wanted a week off, and so my boss let me go to uh, our church's youth camp as a counselor. And so I go, and it was that week on that Tuesday night as I was praying with students and as I was just opening the Bible with them and counseling them about whatever it is the Lord had laid on their heart, that in me awaked a sense of call, not to teach high school music, but to go into full-time ministry. That was a turning point for me. John, Pam, you probably remember a turning point like that for you. I'm certain Gary and Mary Jane do. I know Randy and Brenda, our partners in Guatemala, and many others know those kinds of things. Indeed, every Christian actually knows that at their, in their life there's been a turning point, right? Because by nature we were walking away from God. We were walking deeper into sin and toward judgment until His grace broke through and turned us, and we're headed in a completely different direction now. Everything changed. And this moment in Moses' life is a turning point. Nothing will be the same for him after this. His direction, his purpose, his life, his work, all of it goes in a new direction. He's going to leave shepherding sheep to shepherd people. He's going to leave facing predators in the wilderness to face Pharaoh in his palace. This is an amazing moment. But in reality, it's not actually Moses' moment. Some people will look at this and they'll say, what a moment this is for Moses, isn't it? Well, no, no, no. Actually, this isn't his moment at all. This is God's moment. These verses are about God. These verses are about who God is and what God is about to do. 
And it teaches us that God reveals His plan to save His people through His mediator. Okay? That's what we see here. Now, let's walk through it. First of all, I want you to see that God reveals Himself. Notice how the chapter begins. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Here's what you'll not read. Moses went looking for God. Moses did not go looking for God. He is there grazing his sheep. He's not a seeker. He's a shepherd. He woke up that morning like every other morning. He had his to-do list. Feed the flock. Water the flock. Protect the flock. Go to bed. I mean, that was it. That was what he was doing there. His to-do list was the same every single day. And it's on this ordinary day, this normal day, yes, far from home, but a normal day still, that God comes to Moses. Now, before we go on, actually, I think it bears saying to you who are Christians that, I mean, many of us just love our routine, don't we? We love our routine. We love the ordinariness. We love the rhythm of life. All of it. But you should know that God may step right into that ordinariness and set you apart for something you had never expected. He may want you in seminary. He may want you on a mission field. He may want you in some new ministry that just seems beyond you. And to speak directly to you men, particularly men who are younger than I am, which is a growing number each year, God calls men out of every generation to lead His people, to serve as pastors, to serve as elders. And believe me when I say, nobody just thinks, hey, one day I'm going to receive a, a call from the Lord to do this. Nobody wakes up and thinks that. They're on the backside of a mountain somewhere doing their, minding their own business. The question I have for those of you in this room is, who will it be from your generation? Who will it be? Friend, it may just be you. God comes into the ordinary and calls ordinary folks to to trust Him and to serve Him. But that's really an aside because we need to get back to Moses. He's not not looking for God. That was the point. but, But here's the thing. Even if he was looking for God, let's say he set out with his sheep. He's like, if I get to the backside of this wilderness and I get close enough to that mountain, I think I'm going to find God there. Well, even if he wanted to, he wouldn't find him because God is not one who is found or figured out by human effort and human intellect. You see, things like science may affirm to us God's creative work It can remind us of God, but it can't take us to God. Philosophy, with philosophy, we can't think our way to God, not as He truly is. The only way we can know God is by God making Himself known to us. That is, this is the Christian doctrine of revelation. And it makes sense when you think, when you consider just a couple of things about God. The first is that He is infinite. I mean, the human mind is unbelievable, isn't it? It's amazing what the human mind can do, what the human mind can figure out, what the human mind can develop. 
But the human mind, no matter how great it is, it is limited. There are things it cannot do. It cannot really grasp the infinite. We can't, by our own mental effort, get our hands around who God is. One of Job's friends says this to him about the knowledge of God. It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? But not only is God infinite, God is personal. Now, we all know what it's like for, for somebody to see us, maybe to have a couple of encounters with us, and then assume that they know us. Have you ever had that happen to you? They just see you. They've had a couple of conversations, and they say, I know everything about that person. I'll be able to predict their behavior. I already like them. I already don't like them. All those kinds of things. But in reality, people only know what we reveal to them. And if that's true of human beings, how much more is that true of our great, eternal, immortal, invisible God? You see, God must reveal Himself to us. He must show us His character, the way He operates. He must pull back the curtain for us. He must show us. He must tell us. And that's what God does with Moses. He's here at Horeb, which is called the mountain of God. Now, it's not like there was a sign at the entrance to the mountain that says, you are now entering the mountain of God, all right? There was, uh, I served a church up in Grant County where literally when, uh, you, when you drove onto the property, there was a sign at, I don't have authority over signs, there was a sign at the at the entrance that says, you are now entering holy ground. There was nothing like that at Horeb, you understand. They hadn't gone to the sign company to put up a sign for it. It wasn't scribbled in the dirt. It was just a mountain. But looking back on this moment, as Moses writes this down, he calls it the mountain of God. I mean, when you think about what happens here, because Horeb and Sinai are two names for the same place. God calls Moses on this mountain. God gives His law on this mountain. It is the mountain of God. And look, and it's here that God reveals Himself. Notice how God reveals Himself. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now an angel is a representative, a messenger. But if, when you read the whole paragraph, you understand this is no ordinary angel. This is no ordinary representative because as we just heard, the angel of the Lord appears in the bush. But then if you look in verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of where? Where? The bush. Now, wait a second. Isn't the angel in the bush? Yes, the angel's in the bush. Well, now God is in the bush. It must be a very big bush. No, 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 no. The angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. This is what's called a theophany, a visible manifestation of God. It is this burning bush, this flame of fire, which is a clear indicator, especially in the Old Testament, of God's presence. When God's people are in the wilderness, He gives them light at night by a pillar of fire. When God comes to Mount Sinai to give His law, He descends in fire. 
But Moses doesn't actually understand what he's seeing. Did you notice that? Look at verse 3. Verse 3, Moses said, he doesn't say, I'll turn aside because this must be a theophany. He just says, I'm going to turn aside and look at this because this bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. He's seen plenty of fires in the wilderness, but nothing like this. So he turns aside. The fullness of understanding who it is that God is and what it is that God will do will only come when God, as it were, opens his mouth. And so God speaks. That's how God reveals himself in this angel, this flame, and then his words. So, but what does God reveal? Notice that. What God reveals about himself. Well, first, I think... It is fair to say if this fire which burns continually and does not consume the bush, if this is a representation of God's presence, it seems that God is revealing himself as self-existent. Think about this. This is a fire that actually needs no wood. It needs no fuel. It just is. Isn't this God? Isn't that what God is like? He needs nothing. God, God is not like man that he needs you or needs anything. He doesn't need me. He simply is. But then we see immediately when God speaks that God is holy. Look at verse 4 and 5. When the Lord turned, when the Lord saw, he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. See, the ground isn't inherently holy. The ground is holy because God is there. Holiness is separateness, otherness. There is no one like God. He is holy. He is other. God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. You see, you can't strut into God's presence with your head held high and your chin in the air and your chest puffed out. You can't come casually into God's presence No, you must bend, you must bow, you must come with reverence and humility and recognize His supremacy. Take, take off your shoes, Moses, because you're sharing this ground with the one who created this ground and the one who sustains this ground and the one who rules over this ground, the one who is holy. But also, God reveals that He is faithful. Verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is not a new God coming on the scene, in other words. This is a God who has been at work. This is the same God who worked in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember those stories, Moses. Remember how I called them. Remember how I was faithful to them. 
I'm that same God now. That God is who I am. That's what God is saying. And all of this is overwhelming so that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. That is right, that kind of reverence, that kind of reverent fear of the Lord. Man cannot look on God and live, God will say. But then we see that the Lord reveals that He is compassionate. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Now we saw this two weeks ago when we were at the end of chapter 2. We were just told that. But now God is telling Moses, this is who I am. I am self-existent. I am holy. I am faithful. I am compassionate. The God who is other, the God who is separate, is actually not distant. He is not uncaring. He sees. He hears. He knows. His heart is moved. This is the God who has revealed Himself to Moses. I mean, this is an extraordinary revelation, isn't it? It's extraordinary. So many people would love to have this kind of thing. They're like, well, you know, if I could just, if I could just see a burning bush like that, I mean, if I only had a sign, then I'd really know that God is real. But friend, God has done so much to reveal Himself. Look, look at creation. Look at its orderliness. Look at the patterns. Look at the wonderful, mysterious machine that is the human body. See God's power, God's beauty, God's divine nature in creation. Look at His Word, this gracious gift God has not only shown, He has spoken. He has told us who He is. Listen to His words. Read them. Study them. Let them sink deeply into your heart. Contemplate them. Look at Jesus. He is the theophany. He is the visible manifestation of God. Do you remember before Jesus went to the cross, he looked Thomas in the eye and he said, or Philip, I can't remember which one, it was one of those two, you can figure it out for yourself after, but he looked his disciple in the eye and he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Friend, ask God for eyes of faith and then look at creation, look at the Bible. Look at Jesus. God has revealed Himself. God reveals Himself, and then secondly, God reveals what He will do. God doesn't just see the affliction. He doesn't just know the injustice. He hasn't just heard their prayers. He's going to act. That's what He goes on to say in verse 8. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God says, 
I have come down. God is about to intervene. Susan and I, over the years as parents, have, have, have talked often about uh, the efficacy of the daddy voice. You see, there, there, there have been different times. Uh, it wasn't this last week, and I'm not going to name names because we, were all, we could all be named in this at some point, couldn't we? Um, but that there have been times when maybe I've gotten a call at work and one or more of the children is out of sorts, misbehaving, and nothing is getting better. And it's coming up on lunch, and I hear what's going on, and I just tell her, I'm on my way. A few, handful of weeks ago, one of my older boys uh, called me. He was, having, he was stuck on the north side of town having car trouble. That is the call that dad will get, right? Mom typically doesn't get called when you're stuck on the side of the road. Dad gets called when you're on the side of the road. So he calls, he explains everything, and I hear all of it, and I, and I just say, I'm on my way. And when God in the Old Testament says, I have come down, he's essentially saying, I'm on my way. Sometimes in judgment, correction, punishment, sometimes to rescue and help. But whatever it is that's going on, he's not going to let it go on any longer without his intervention. He's coming. He's coming to the rescue. He's coming to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, the hand that's heavy on them, the hand of affliction, the hand of oppression, the hand that grips their neck and squeezes the life out of them, refusing to let go, refusing to let up. God says, I have come down. Oh, yes, the hand of the Egyptians may be quite strong right now, but I am coming, and I'm going to pry open that hand, and I am going to rescue you out of it. So that later, I mean, we heard, but later in that same song in in Exodus 15, uh, uh, Moses sings, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Being gripped by a hand that won't let go and that plans destruction isn't just a problem for these Israelites in Egypt. It's a problem that you'll find in different societies throughout all of human history, won't you? Even now, isn't there a hand reaching for the Ukrainian neck? But in the end, this is not merely the hand that we really need to concern ourselves. Ultimately, is not a political hand. It's not a military hand. It's not that these things just happen to certain people at certain times and in certain places. You see, there's a hand behind all the other hands. And it's the hand of sin. You see, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve rebel against God, the hand of sin reaches into humanity and takes hold. And no matter how much you try to squirm out of its grip, it only gets tighter and tighter until you're lifeless in its hand. And Paul writes, we are dead in trespasses and sins. You see, the problem of the world today, the problem, the biggest problem in your life and the biggest problems in the world, all of the problems of humanity are because of this hand, the hand of sin. 
that has an unrelenting grip on us. And yet God has said, I have come down. The hand of sin is strong, but the hand of God is stronger. He comes down to deliver, to save, to rescue. For these Israelites, He reaches down, He comes down to bring them up. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. They are suffering in Egypt, but God will rescue them and bring them home. Now, that home belongs to others right now, but it'll soon be theirs. And it, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It, it oozes provision and beauty and life and hope. It's like a large garden. It's kind of like a new Eden where God will be theirs and they will be God's. Now, we all know, if you know your Bible, you know the story. It didn't last. But Christian, isn't that what we're waiting for? We're not waiting for a new place on this earth. We're waiting for a new earth altogether, one that is remade, one that is reborn, one that is renewed, one that is redeemed. You see, for now, the world is the dominion of sin and suffering, and the devil wreaks havoc. But the day is coming when Christ will bring that to an end. He will come down, and His reign will be fully realized, and we will reign with Him, and this world will be ours. He says, the meek will inherit the earth. This is what God's promised. This is why God came down in the person of His Son to save us from the hand of sin, to grip us in His grace, to carry us through this life, to bring us up to a new earth flowing with milk and honey, a place where there's no hand of sin and no evidence of it, no mourning, no crying, no pain, no death anymore. It's only oozing with life and provision forever. That's what we're looking forward to, isn't it? That's the promise that we have because God has come down. So, God reveals Himself to Moses. He reveals what He's going to do. He is going to save His people. He is going to bring them home. And then, finally, God reveals how He's going to do it, how He will do it. Now, imagine Moses as he listens, right? He just starts thinking, well, God is God's going to rescue these people. Well, there might be. These are my fellow Israelites. God's going to give them the land that He promised. I mean, maybe Moses thought back to the day that he tried to rescue just one Israelite from an Egyptian. He kills him, and he ends up as a fugitive on the run. But now, where I've failed, God is going to succeed. Isn't that wonderful? This is good news. I'm very happy about this. Let me take my sheep and get them to some grass and get them to some water. This is a good day. I can't wait to get home and tell Jethro. But what he isn't expecting is what he hears next. Come, verse 10, I will send you. <laughs> now Moses has immediate objections to this. Objections we will get to next week. But for now, just hear this. 
God isn't saying he needs Moses. God doesn't come and say, now Moses, I can't actually deliver them unless you help me. There is no sense in which God is saying that. What he is saying is, this is how I will do my work. Through a mediator, a go-between, one who will represent God to the people and will represent the people before God. And Moses is that mediator, and he's not the one you'd expect. He's not a warrior. He's a shepherd. You'd think God would go find, uh, you know, Chuck Norris or something, because surely Chuck Norris could take out all these folks. But that's not who he goes to get. He gets nobody Norris. (laughs) And he says, you're my guy. It's not just that he's a shepherd. He's a shepherd who was rejected by his own people. Do you remember that? This is what they said to him in chapter 2. Who made you a prince and judge over us? This interview's not going very well, is it? But still, Moses leaves his home and he goes into the darkness of Egypt. In the name of the Lord. He's going to speak the Lord's words. He's going to do mighty acts by God's power. He's going to call God's people to follow Him out of Egypt, to leave Egypt behind and to be free. He is going to go as God's obedient servant and face their great enemy, Pharaoh. And by the miraculous power of God, He will bring them from certain death to life. That's how God is going to rescue His people through his mediator. And friends, what is that but a foreshadowing of our precious Lord Jesus Christ? There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He left his heavenly home and came into the darkness of the world, but not as you might expect, not as a trained warrior, as a trained carpenter. And he too is rejected. John 1, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And yet he comes, he speaks the words of God, he performs the mighty deeds of God. Jesus heals and Jesus casts out demons and Jesus raises the dead all by the power of God, by the power of the Spirit. He calls people to follow him, to leave everything, to leave the familiar, to die to self, to repent and to find freedom from sin's powerful grip. He rescues us by dying in our place, taking the hand of sin and its stranglehold off of us and putting it on himself and dying under its guilt and its punishment for us. And he faces off with our last and greatest enemy, death, and he wins the victory over death when he is raised from the dead by the miraculous power of God. And all who trust in him, all who follow him, will be brought from death to life. Friend, do you know what that means? That means he'll save you. 
If you will turn to him, he will save you. If you trust him, he will save you. If you will leave Egypt and follow Jesus. Follow him through the wilderness of this life. Follow him into the glorious Eden to come, the new heavens and new earth. It's wonderful, isn't it? These ten verses, in many ways, are just a snapshot of the story of the whole Bible, of a self-existent, holy, compassionate God who reveals Himself to us, who reveals His great salvation, who promises forgiveness of sin and new life, and who keeps that promise through His mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear that today. This is not Moses' moment. This is God's moment. He is stepping on the scene of human history to do His work through His mediator. In essence, that is the only message God has for us. He has stepped in. He has come down. He will save but he will only save through his mediator. There we find God. There we find salvation. There we find hope. There we find joy in the midst of this wilderness. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you thankful that these words were written down to teach us. We are thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. We recognize that we would know nothing of you had you not revealed yourself. We thank you for revealing what you will do, what you have done in coming down in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to save us from our sin. We thank you for revealing how you saved us through Jesus so that we wouldn't go looking for our, our own method, our own ideas, try to come up with something. But instead, we would look to Jesus. Father, we thank you for the truth that you save your people through your mediator. And we pray that we would rejoice in that today. We'd find hope in that today. And that we would live the lives of redeemed people because that is true today. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our mediator. Amen.